I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is a nonpartisan nonprofit chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. The Biden administration recently extended the Center for Disease Control's moratorium on eviction proceedings. That followed a vigorous debate inside and outside the administration about whether or not that action was consistent with federal statutes and with the Constitution. On today's episode, we will explore the statutory and constitutional questions surrounding that debate with two of America's leading commentators on presidential power and the Constitution. Ilya Shapiro is vice president of the Cato Institute, director of the Robert A. Levy Center for Constitutional Studies, and publisher of the Cato Supreme Court Review. He has written about the eviction moratorium on the Cato at Liberty blog. Ilya, it is always wonderful to have you on the show. Good to be back. And Peter M. Shane is the Jacob E. Davis and Jacob E. Davis II chair in law at the Ohio State University's Moritz College of Law. He has written about the moratorium for the Washington Monthly and wrote a leading casebook on separation of powers issues. Peter, it's great to have you on the show. Wonderful to be with you, Jeff, and to meet Ilya, with whom I've never previously had a conversation. So this is terrific. Wonderful. Well, we're looking forward to it. And Peter, perhaps you can start us off by stating the facts, as Professor Kingsfield used to say, the legality and constitutionality of the eviction moratorium has been reviewed by lower courts, by the Supreme Court, and by a vigorous internal debate within the Biden administration. Tell us how we got to where we are now. Sure. The order that's now being debated is actually the second order that the CDC issued for an eviction moratorium. The history of the the moratoria or moratoriums started with Congress actually enacting a 120-day moratorium that expired. After it expired, and this is during the Trump administration, President Trump asked the CDC to consider whether circumstances would warrant basically triggering uh, any kind of remedial measures that they could take under the Public Health uh, Public Health Act. And the CDC, in fact, imposed an eviction moratorium that started under the Trump administration. It was uh, extended explicitly with con- congressional approval at the turn of the, the turn of the new year. And then it was extended again under the Biden administration. That extension of this sort of what I'll call the first order, expired by its own terms at the end of July. There was a lot of litigation about that. The lower courts disagreed about the legality of the order, really is measured by the statutory authority of the CDC under the Public Health Act. But in in one of these cases, the case that was decided in the U.S. District Court for the District of Columbia, uh, Judge Friedrich, who was the trial court judge, initially found that the CDC lacked the authority under the Public Health Act to impose something like an eviction moratorium, but she stayed her order, which meant that uh, it wouldn't go into effect right away and that moratorium would would remain in effect. The uh, Alabama Association of Realtors who brought the case asked the D.C. Circuit to lift her stay and allow them to continue, allow their members to continue to evict non-paying tenants. The D.C. Circuit uh, did not lift the stay, and in, in, in its opinion, indicated that in the view of the panel, 
the government would likely prevail on the merits, meaning that they thought it probably was lawful, at which point the plaintiffs then went to the Supreme Court and asked them to lift the stay. To lift the stay in the Supreme Court would have taken five votes. What happened is you had four of what we think of as the conservative bloc. They would have lifted the stay. They didn't offer any reasons, but they voted to lift the stay. The three that we ordinarily consider the liberals voted not to lift the stay, but they were joined by Chief Justice Roberts, also without explanation, and by Justice Kavanaugh. And Justice Kavanaugh wrote a statement for himself that just said, um, this thing is basically, this is going to expire in a few weeks anyway, so I'm not voting to lift the stay now. In other words, I will allow the, the moratorium to remain in effect for the next few weeks. But in my view, continuing the moratorium would require clear and explicit authority from Congress, which had not yet been forthcoming. So it's that opinion that has been the source of a lot of confusion, because at one point in his press conference, President Biden seemed to say the National Review in a one columnist said the Washington Post and editorial all seem to treat this as a Supreme Court holding that the moratorium was without legal authority. It wasn't a court holding at all. Um, it might be an indication of you know where the what the crystal ball should say about the likelihood of eventual success. But as as far as the law is concerned, the stay was never lifted. There is nothing. There is no order out of D.C. in effect that uh, the administration is defying. The, the administration initially took the position that it would need new authority to have a new moratorium. They changed tracks. The CDC did announce a second moratorium. It is different from the first in that it is not automatically of national scope. It only targets uh, counties in which there is a very high rate of new infection, which is about 80% of the counties. And there's been a lot of reporting back and forth about what led the administration sort of dither in this way, and that's sort of where we are. Wonderful. Thank you very much for walking us through that complicated path. So let's begin with the statutory language. Ilya, tell us what the relevant statute is and whether or not you think that the new eviction moratorium violates the statute. Well, thanks, Jeff. Um, well, one, I'm, I'm going to quibble with the uh, characterization of uh, this being a narrower or narrower moratorium. It still covers uh, more than 80, maybe 90 percent uh, of, of what the other one covered uh, under the same terms with severe criminal penalties for trying to engage in, in evictions. So it's uh, you know, it's it's narrower, and you know, I guess technically it is somewhat narrow, but it's still almost the, the almost the whole enchilada, um, and you don't really have to go back to the to the same um, uh, uh, to, to the drawing board in 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 drawing up the challenge. I think the the legal arguments are exactly the same as in the ongoing litigation that, as you note, uh, uh, I'm still uh, involved in. But this goes to the Public Health Service Act. Uh, which says that the Surgeon General, with the approval of the Secretary of Health and Human Services, is authorized to make and enforce such regulations as are necessary to prevent the introduction, transmission, or spread of communicable diseases, 
and may provide for such, quote, inspection, fumigation, disinfection, sanitation, pest extermination, destruction of animals or articles found to be so infected or contaminated as to be sources of dangerous infection to human beings and other measures as in his judgment may be necessary. Now, uh, the reason why I read out that whole long list is because that's important. Um, So this is a public health uh, uh, law uh, that says uh, HHS uh, can, you know, delegates power to, in this case, the head of the CDC, who is not a Senate confirmed official. That's a separate wrinkle in all of this, whether this unconfirmed uh, official in the executive branch can take up this expansive power to, to regulate and, and restrict the massive national uh, rental market. Uh, but look at what is listed here, pest extermination, sanitation, destruction of animals, etc., and other measures. And so the problem is that you have this, this old canon of statutory construction. The Latin is a justum generis, which means of the same kind. If you're listing a whole bunch of things and then you say, and other such things or other things, they're kind of of that same kind. Uh, and so messing with the rental market, or as the CDC has also done for that matter, changing immigration rules and restrictions and uh, excluding people traveling to the United States from Mexico, that was also recently extended uh, by the CDC. Again, all of these uh, huge executive branch power grabs are bipartisan. It happened under Trump. Now it's happening under Biden. But the key problem is that the CDC, the Biden administration, as the Trump administration did before, is justifying this expansive action by the phrase and other measures in that provision that I read out. But uh, these other measures are nothing like the disinfection, fumigation, animals, pests, etc., cetera, uh, that were listed there. And that fundamentally, even before we get to uh, uh, more uh, basic issues of of constitutional law, whether Congress probably uh, properly delegated that power to HHS, which in turn delegated to the uh, CDC for that matter, an even more basic concept of whether Congress, the federal government, can even regulate local uh, rental markets. Before we even get to all of that, which I, I think we will, just the technical statutory interpretation poses a problem. Because if if you're saying, if the government is saying that that other measures part of the provision says, well, anything, well, then why have that list? Uh, isn't this essentially a delegation to this unelected, not Senate confirmed official to do anything that just in his or her judgment thinks may help uh, stem the pandemic in some way? That can't be the law. Peter, as Ilya says, much of the statutory debate turns on the scope of this second sentence, which he read. As you wrote in the Washington Monthly, opponents of the moratorium argue that the second sentence about providing for inspection, fumigation, disinfection, sanitation, pest extermination, and so forth, shows a carefully delineated legislative intent. And one federal judge who read the statute narrowly said that Congress empowered the executive only to regulate animals or articles which are themselves infected uh, or a source of contagion. But you then go on to say that defenders of the moratorium read the second sentence as having no such limiting effect. How do the defenders read the second sentence? And what argument do you think is most persuasive? The defenders of the moratorium read the second sentence as, in a way, confirming the breadth of the first sentence. So the first sentence that Ilya read does, you know, on its face, encompass eviction moratoriums or indeed other 
other unspecified measures. And it's really the breadth of that first sentence that the government is relying on, not the, the, the tag end of the second sentence. The second sentence deals with a, a bunch of measures that would involve seizures of property or uh, trespasses that would uh, otherwise create Fourth Amendment issues unless Congress had authorized administrative measures of this kind. So one way of thinking about the two sentences from the proponent's point of view is the first measure says, if we have, if we, the CDC, have figured out that something is necessary to prevent the communication of disease across state lines, you know, we can take that measure. And the second sentence says, and we can do that even if it involves measures that would amount to search and seizure. Well, um, as of March, two district courts that have held the moratorium and two struck it down. There have been more rulings uh, since then, including new challenges, not only to the statutory authority, but on constitutional grounds. And Ilya, you and the Cato Institute have filed a brief in the Texas case challenging the application of the moratorium in Texas on several constitutional grounds, including arguing that Congress lacks authority under the Commerce Clause to pass the moratorium and that the statute is so broad that it violates the so-called non-delegation doctrine. Uh, Introduce us to the constitutional arguments that you are making against the moratorium in Texas. Sure. Um, I mean, the the arguments work the same way, whether they're in Texas or or D.C. or Ohio or or anywhere else, because there's one moratorium. Well, there was one. Now there's there's a different one. It's all uh, coming from Washington, which is the problem and actually uh, raises a separate issue that uh, different states are trying to address this issue with their own state uh, eviction moratoria or other measures. And the CDC in its own terms can only act when state measures are, are insufficient. But in any event, um, there's a very fundamental problem about whether the federal government uh, has any regulatory authority over local rental contracts. I mean, uh, when somebody is renting, uh, uh, we're not talking about large commercial enterprises with you know, multi-state uh, leases or, or, or what have you of warehouses and facilities and so forth. We're talking about you know, local apartments or, or houses or uh, things like that, the things that uh, probably most listeners are, are familiar with. Um, they might be renters themselves. They uh, Surely, uh, were renters when they were, uh, you know, uh, younger, etc. Um, and uh, the idea that the federal government uh, can, through its uh, power to regulate interstate commerce, can regulate these these local contracts between uh, a landlord and a, uh, and a and a tenant. Uh, and again, not talking about multi-state huge landlords, but just you know small uh, small businesses. Some sometimes the the landlord occupies the same building, rents out a room, or rents out part of a house, uh, things like that. Uh, that um, goes beyond, uh, I think, uh, the Congress's power to regulate uh, you know interstate commerce. Again, Congress doesn't just have a blank check to regulate anything that has a dollar sign uh, in front of it. There has to be that that. That nexus and the definition of commerce is generally, or at least was understood uh, at the time of the uh, enactment uh, of the Constitution, of the ratification, that uh, commerce means trade. Um, it's not just anything that's uh, that has a dollar sign attached to it. Uh, and also, um, it's unclear that Congress can delegate away. This is a, a separate uh, uh, a constitutional argument, the non-delegation argument. It's unclear that Congress can dele- delegate away, even if it did have the power to regulate these local contracts uh, for renting property. 
uh, can delegate that power, which is legislative, uh, to uh, the executive branch, uh, albeit uh, there hasn't been an invalidation of a congressional delegation to the executive branch since 1935. Uh, but still, there seems to be some ap- appetite on this Supreme Court uh, for finding an appropriate case um, uh, to put uh, teeth back into the, the non-delegation doctrine. Peter, Ilya's argument against the constitutionality of the moratorium under the Commerce Clause has two components. First, that Congress can't regulate evictions because they're local rather than national activities and therefore don't affect interstate commerce. And second, that the decision about whether or not to evict is not an economic activity and therefore can't be regulated under the Commerce Clause at all. This question of the scope of the Commerce Clause is very hotly contested right now on the Supreme Court. It came up in the Affordable Care Act case. It dates back to the New Deal. Tell us, under existing precedents, uh, and the most recent important one is the Affordable Care Act case, uh, do you find the argument that the eviction moratorium is unconstitutional under Congress's commerce power convincing or not? I don't find it persuasive. Uh, And again, just to make clear that we're focusing on the Commerce Clause argument, not the delegation point here, I'm imagining and I'm asking listeners to imagine a, a statute that would have explicitly authorized an eviction moratorium as a way of preventing communicable disease from crossing state lines. So let's imagine there's no issue about whether, uh, you know, Congress had given a very big license to, to do whatever the CDC in its discretion thought was useful. Instead, that they had spelled out very clearly that they wanted an eviction moratorium. The most recent, I guess, comprehensive statement of or a synthesis of the Supreme Court's thinking about what the Commerce Clause allows was actually um, Lopez versus, United States versus Lopez in the 1990s. This is a, an opinion written by uh, then Chief Justice Rehnquist, who um, even though Lopez, which invalidated a uh, an aspect of the, the, I forget the exact name of the statute, but it's the, the statute that prevented uh, guns from being carried within a certain number of feet of schools, Chief Justice Rehnquist said that this case left intact the authority of Congress to protect interstate commerce from threats, you know, from wherever they might come, including from local local events, local transactions. And, you know, we, we've seen this in uh, with regard to anti-discrimination law. We've seen this with regard to environmental law. There's there's really no doubt that the transmission of COVID in any of its variants has had an astounding effect on interstate commerce. And if Congress believes that limiting the communicability of the disease over state lines would, uh, or at all, would protect interstate commerce, even the the transmission of the disease locally. I mean, if, if I'm staying out of a restaurant because I've caught COVID from somebody, my neighbor, I mean, can't get more, much more local than that, but I'm not going to a restaurant. If I'm not going to a restaurant, well, that restaurant's purchase of food interstate is going to go down. Their purchase of supplies interstate is going to go down. The same, you could say that with regard to hotels, you know, entertainment, virtually any industry. So Congress could decide that the spread of COVID is, is an enormous threat to interstate commerce and it could authorize interstate commerce to be protected from this threat. 
I should also say Congress could also word such a statute in a way that they were regulating uh, directly people who participate in interstate commerce. That is, Congress could have said that, you know, at least renters or, you know, who are, excuse me, landlords who are engaged in interstate advertising or have some other connection with interstate commerce, um, that they cannot conduct evictions during this moratorium. So they could have done it with that kind of jurisdictional provision, or they could have relied on uh, just the threat to commerce in general. With regard to the fact that, you know, we're talking about a, a, a government practice, it's still a government practice that is the eviction practice. It's still a government practice triggered by landlords based on the non-payment of, of rent. And it is so intimately connected with an economic transaction that, that I think it's just very hard to argue that, that, that it's beyond uh, Congress's authority to regulate, assuming this other nexus with interstate commerce. Ilya, invoking the Lopez case, which Peter just cited, uh, you note that Lopez distinguishes between what's truly national and what's truly local, and you argue that Congress can only regulate interstate economic activity and not non-economic activity, and the legal process of eviction is not economic in nature, and eviction cannot be produced, distributed, or consumed. It cannot be sold, exchanged, or bartered. It would be insulting to describe a judicial process as having an apparent commercial character, and therefore Congress lacks the power to criminalize this legal process of eviction, which is not an economic activity. The Supreme Court in the Affordable Care Act case um, narrowed the scope of the Commerce Clause in an opinion that Chief Justice Roberts joined along with the other conservative justices. Based on what the court said about the Commerce Clause in the Affordable Care Act case, do you imagine that it would agree with your Commerce Clause argument or not? Well, I don't think it would agree with Peter's argument that there are essentially no limits on federal power because everything affects everything at the end of the day. And, you know, the going out to eat is restricted by a disease and, you know, all, all the rest of it. I mean, I, I heard no possible limiting principle there. So that can't be right. Um, what the court said in the Obamacare case, uh, NFIB versus Sebelius, was that um, Congress cannot create or force economic activity uh, in order to then regulate it uh, under the Commerce Clause or under the Necessary and Proper Clause uh, application of the Commerce Clause. Uh, in that case, that, that was health insurance. Uh, Congress cannot require you to buy health insurance in order to regulate uh, it uh, as part of a, a larger national market of health care or health insurance. Here, it's not that Congress is uh, creating uh, rental agreements or, or those kinds of relationships, nor is it uh, uh, creating evictions, nor, nor is it even creating the, the eviction judicial process. Each state has its own judicial process uh, for filing a petition of, of eviction in, in, in court. Um, so it's, it's unclear uh, whether NFIB, um, you know, how relevant it is other than, uh, you know, in, in, in considering that, uh, you know, the, that, that a legal process is not a commercial one, I, I suppose. Uh, but here the argument is over, um, you know, whether the, the whole uh, rental relationship uh, or, or, or uh, forcing someone out of their home uh, has an economic effect in various ways, whether that is a proper way of uh, regulating uh, interstate commerce relating to, I guess, the pandemic's impact on the national uh, economy. So I think it's a different sort of issue uh, than NFIB was, but it is somewhat similar to Lopez 
in that there uh, it was uh, regulating someone's possession of a gun near a school. And here it's regulating a, uh, a contract or a legal process of eviction, which uh, you correctly characterized uh, Cato's brief as, as describing uh, an attempt to regulate or an improper uh, regulation of non-economic activity. Peter, your thoughts on how the current Supreme Court would evaluate the Commerce Clause challenge to the eviction moratorium if it were to take it up squarely? I suspect that the current Supreme Court, uh, it, first of all, I always tell my <laughs> classes in constitutional administrative law that my crystal ball comes with the weakest batteries possible. So, uh, you know, I offered this prediction with some hesitation. You know, I, I think the chances are pretty significant that this court would find that the moratorium order uh, exceeded statutory authority. I, I don't think that that's an unreasonable guess, given what Justice Kavanaugh said, and that there were four people who would have lifted the stay on the first uh, on on the order uh, banning the first moratorium. But um, I don't think they. I don't think this court would even reach the constitutional question. I think the court would, um, and and clearly a court uh, persuaded that the moratorium was unlawful as exceeding the statute would not need to and could not properly reach the constitutional question. Ilya said that you know he he didn't hear he, he didn't hear in my response a, a limitation on Congress's commerce clause powers, but. So I'll be explicit. The limit is the limit that uh, the court referred to in Lopez and also in uh, the Morrison case on the um, Violence Against Women Act, which is that the, the, the aggregation of activity that is being regulated has to be activity that is economic in nature. Now, I understand, you know, and again, this is not a trivial or silly argument that by regulating eviction, what's being regulated is the use of a judicial process, but it is the use of a judicial process that is intimately connected with the enforcement of an economic obligation. And I, I just have a hard time imagining that the court would accept that argument, that, that is the argument that is somehow not economic activity. The rent, the entire arrangement, the entire relationship between landlords and tenants uh, strikes me as being within the bounds of what the court is willing to consider economic. Ilya, you and Cato make other constitutional arguments against the moratorium in the Texas case, including the argument that it intrudes on state sovereignty and and violates the non-delegation doctrine. Tell us what the non-delegation doctrine is and and why you think that the moratorium violates it. Well, I mentioned this uh, in in passing before, that Congress can't delegate the the legislative power uh, to the executive or to anyone else for that matter. This is the the idea that we have the separation of powers uh, and... um, uh, if, if, if Congress wants, you know, Congress is the, is the lawmaking body and uh, the executive is the law enforcing or, or executing uh, body and uh, never the twain shall meet. Um, so there has to, the, the, the Supreme Court jurisprudence says that there has to be an intelligible principle. Um, you know, we don't expect Congress necessarily to write every jot and tittle of the regulations uh, by which uh, the modern administrative state operates. 
Um, uh, but uh, it can't just be a blank check saying you can do whatever you want in, in any given area. Uh, in, in recent years, there have been a number of writings um, uh, from the court, uh, from, from uh, what now constitutes a majority of justices, uh, saying that they're uneasy that uh, with uh, the current scope uh, of the of the delegation power uh, seemingly uh, unlimited, and they're looking for the appropriate case in which to uh, to put teeth back into that doctrine, which, as I mentioned at the outset, uh, has not been used to invalidate an act of Congress since 1935. Uh, could this be the case? I'm not sure. Most most scholars um, uh, thought that uh, the a non that the, what the court was looking for is some completely. Uh, uh, low profile, very technical, maybe bankruptcy or, or, or some other uh, area of law uh, where they could start uh, um, uh, reactivating the non-delegation doctrine. And so, you know, I would expect that um, uh, if the plaintiffs su- succeed here in their challenge to the moratorium, that it would be more on the statutory argument without reaching uh, either of these constitutional ones, frankly. Peter, what are your thoughts on the non-delegation doctrine. Uh, it's been accepted by the district court in the Chambliss case, which said that a non-delegation concern arises because a broad reading of the statute leaves the CDC without any intelligible principle to guide the agency's discretion. As Ilya said, this is a hotly contested issue on the U.S. Supreme Court. And in the Gundy case, uh, Justice Gorsuch uh, called for a, a, a revival of the non-delegation doctrine that Justice Kagan said would invalidate the entire administrative state. So it's, it is an important issue. Um, on, on the merits, do you think that the eviction moratorium violates the non-delegation doctrine or not? Well, the eviction moratorium, I guess the, the real question is, does the Public Health Service Act, if it authorizes, if it's read to authorize an eviction moratorium, violate the non-delegation doctrine? The theory being that to allow the first sentence to go as far as the government wants it to go is, a ba- is basically to write a, a blank check for administrative discretion, unconfined by, as Ilya said, an in- the intelligible principle that the court ordinarily requires as a, a sign that the delegation of policymaking authority is sufficiently channeled to be constitutional. I, I think, I'll just say again, I mean, I, so Ilya and I have found a point of agreement here which is if, the, if this court were to um, were to find this particular element of the case troubling, if they were worried about how broad a reading the government is urging for that first sentence, they would most likely use that concern as a way of reading the statute narrowly. There is a you know a, a canon of construction that is a. a a rule of thumb that courts ordinarily use, I'm sure you've discussed it in a variety of contexts called the constitutional avoidance doctrine. If you have a statute that could be read in two different plausible ways based on the text, but one of those linguistically plausible ways would raise a serious constitutional question, that indicates the judges or other interpreters should prefer the the other reading, the non-troublesome reading. So a judge who believes that Congress, if it were to write this much discretion into the CDC's uh, operating authority, if they really think that that's a constitutional problem or raises a serious constitutional issue, 
that would be a reason for reading the statute the way that Ilya is urging, that is to read the second sentence as being an indication of how limited the statute is. It doesn't really apply as broadly as a literal reading of the first sentence would permit. On the bigger question of the non-delegation doctrine, I have to say, um, you know, it, it, it is something to see, uh, you know, the new enthusiasm for the non-delegation doctrine after we've now had, uh, we have to go back to the early New Deal to find the only cases in the history of the court in which the non-delegation doctrine has ever been used to invalidate uh, acts of Congress. Um, and one reason, and I think there are two reasons for that. Maybe the primary reason is the court is very conscious of its own, uh, the unelected nature of the federal judiciary and its concern that in tightening up on the delegation doctrine, it is inviting itself perhaps to edge too close to usurping the legislative role and deciding how much discretion is too much or too little for the executive branch to have. That's a democratic question of democratic politics that ought to be left to the elected branches. And the second thing is, you know, nobody's come up with um, what five justices agree is a compelling alternative, uh, more robust version of what the non-delegation doctrine requires other than the intelligible principle requirement. Um, Justice Gorsuch, in his Gundy opinion, does suggest what other tests might be, but they have not uh, they have not gotten a majority's uh, endorsement because they would all be hard to apply in any kind of objective way. There's interesting scholarship going on now, of course. You know, what's fascinating for for some of us also is that when teeth are gnashed about the breadth of congressional delegation. It's often said, you know, remember the framers wanted the separation of powers with this is going, this is, this uh, gives over to the executive branch power that the framers intended remain with the legislative branch. But there's interesting historical argument the other way, namely that um, there's an important article by um, Nick Bagley and Julian Mortensen at uh, Michigan that suggests that the non-delegation doctrine properly understood really is only a bar to delegating authority that Congress cannot take back, that it would only be the inalienable uh, divesting of legislative authority that's barred by the Constitution, not by giving the executive branch very broad uh, administrative discretion to do what it thinks best. And Nick Perillo at Yale has written uh, an equally fascinating paper showing how much authority Congress delegated when it passed the kind of first set of um, direct federal taxes. The, the first set of federal taxes uh, had to be applied based upon property. Uh, not There was no income tax, which required property to be valued in every state. They set up federal boards in every state that came up with rules for local assessment. And those rules were completely unconstrained by any statutory criteria. They were just, the boards were to use their best judgment. And so um, I just want to say, for me, I think it's ironic that um, the plea to reinvigorate the uh, non-delegation doctrine comes from folks who claim to be uh, constitutional originalists, but um, are not always as um, nuanced in their historical investigation as might be appropriate. 
Uh, Ilya, you've both agreed that the court is less likely to invalidate this eviction moratorium if it were to decide it on constitutional grounds than to construe the statutory language narrowly and, and avoid the constitutional questions. Uh, given that, um, are there other cases or challenges on the horizon that you're following or involved in that you think are more likely to give the court an opportunity to re-examine the scope of the Commerce Clause and the non-delegation doctrine? Um, the Commerce Clause, I keep hoping the court takes one of these weird, what I characterize as weird critter cases, where there's some obscure uh, fauna, microfauna typically, in, uh, in some obscure corner of, of a state and doesn't travel anywhere and has no commercial value. Uh, and yet is being regulated by whether the Endangered Species Act or, or some other uh, regulatory scheme. But the, the court has steered away from that in, in all sorts of contexts. Uh, and that, you know, would seem to be a, a, a ripe issue because it's not some, you know, national political hot button. And typically these animals aren't even cute. So um, as far as not, but but I, I don't know. I don't know. It would, it would take, uh, you know, some other you know new novel scheme for Congress to come up with like Obamacare 10 years ago for the court to start looking at that sort of thing. As far as non-delegation goes, um, you know, I'm, I'm in a lot of talking groups where people, administrative law experts, uh, are, are thinking about uh, what would be the ideal case or, or what the standard would be. Peter mentioned that nobody's come up with anything better than the intelligible principle. Uh, and that's probably right. Um, and you, you can kind of, I, I think uh, when a, a suitable case comes up with, uh, comes up, and I, I expect it would be, as I said, with something non-sexy, some very technical uh, area of law or regulation where Congress just gave super broad uh, discretion to this or that uh, secretary or, or agency head uh, that uh, the court won't establish some new principle. It'll, it'll just say, you know, whatever the rule is, what, whatever the, the scope of, of, of the delegation power is, this goes beyond it because there really is no, you know, no limit if we allow this. Well, it is time for closing arguments in this uh, informative and important discussion. And Peter, the first is to you. Please sum up for our wrapped We the People listeners why you believe that the Biden administration's latest extension of the eviction moratorium does not violate federal statutes or the Constitution. Well, the, the thing I want to say confidently is that it is not unconstitutional because um, the Biden administration is not purporting to rest on some novel theory of presidential power. They are not claiming the authority to defy any court order. There's been no court order that the administration is defying. Um, the only authority that they're claiming is the authority. Uh, they're claiming that the Public Health Service Act, properly interpreted, gives the Center for, Centers for Disease Control authority to employ measures to prevent the uh, transmission of communicable disease across state lines and that this is uh, that the eviction moratorium is a proper exercise of that statutory authority. So I want to say with 100% confidence that there's no separation of powers conflict here. The, the issue of statutory interpretation, I think, is a, a question uh, about which reasonable minds could differ, as Judge Calabrese said in Ohio. Um, I, am, I, I would lean toward the, uh, the government's argument, mainly because uh, I think it's consistent, it is consistent with the, uh, the first sentence of the, the paragraph at issue, but also because I think it best gives 
effect to the purpose of the statute, which is to empower the government to solve a problem, a public health problem, when that problem becomes one of concern to every state, not just you know any one state and locality. But it is a close question, and I and I do want to say I I, I would feel be, before I had a confident answer on this. I know you know a podcast you should always have a confident answer to really have the confidence in my answer that I would want as a judge, I would really want to know more about the entire statutory framework that applies in cases like this and not just focus on on the two sentences alone. Thank you so much for that. There is no need for confident answers on We the People podcast, which is all about vigorous and respectful intellectual debate and learning from each other. Ilya, you're the last word to teach our We the People listeners and try to convince them Please sum up why you believe that the eviction moratorium is not authorized by federal statute and violates the Constitution. Well, first of all, Jeff, I I must say that uh, I agree with uh, Peter's uh, uh, description that uh, there is no current Supreme Court order that uh, the Biden administration is violating by promulgating this this new moratorium. I think uh, the, the president did kind of muddy the waters uh, as Jack Goldsmith described in a piece at Lawfare that you referred to at the beginning of this podcast, uh, in uh, making it seem that he was in open defiance uh, of the law, I think he he is sort of, or the administration is showing a bit of whether it's contempt or just um, slapping uh, the olive branch uh, that uh, Justice Kavanaugh extended uh, by allowing the moratorium to stay in place when he did, even though he thought it was uh, unconstitutional. Uh, or going beyond agency power, rather. Um, and so it, it does look like, the, the I mean, the president was announcing that he thought he probably didn't have the power to do it, but at least let's let's keep it going for a while so we can keep distributing this money until until courts uh, stop that. Um, and, and that uh, really made it seem like something, you know, from Andrew Jackson saying the court has ruled and now let it enforce it, uh, or uh, the DACA example in with President Obama saying 22 times, I'm a president, not a king, uh, can't do this. And then he did it uh, anyway when he talked to the right lawyers. So, um, you know, this is, uh, I think there are elements of, of bad faith uh, here that uh, really go uh, uh, back to the idea that if an agency, CDC or otherwise, has this expansive, limitless power to do anything uh, that it thinks might have an impact on uh, on the pandemic, then there we really are not a nation of laws, but of of, of men and women. And indeed, the CDC's own data um, doesn't necessarily show that that uh, even if it had this power, that it's reasonably necessary uh, to take this massive step and intrude in all of these uh, rental agreements and and stop these uh, these processes. So. Um, uh, I think uh, anyone who who uh, doesn't think that the the federal government just gets to do whatever it thinks is 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 right and just and um, uh, I don't know kind uh, in uh, in addressing uh, serious issues, whether that be a lack of health care, whether that be poor education, or in this case, whether it be addressing a pandemic. Anyone who who thinks that there are uh, limits on federal power, or at least that Congress has to be the one. Uh, to uh, take uh, breathtaking uh, exertions of federal power rather than the executive branch uh, of its own volition, uh, I think will uh, agree with uh, what the Supreme Court ultimately is very likely to do, and that is to uh, put a stop to this 
so-called narrower, but not really, moratorium. Thank you so much, Peter Shane and Ilya Shapiro, for a respectful and illuminating discussion of the legal and constitutional issues surrounding the eviction moratorium, uh, full of nuance and complexity, just like the Constitution itself. Peter, Ilya, thank you so much for joining. Great to be with you, Jeff. An illuminating discussion as always. Today's show was produced by Jackie McDermott and engineered by Greg Sheckler. Research was provided by Amy Liu, Olivia Gross, and Lana Ulrich. Please rate, review, and subscribe to We The People on Apple Podcasts and recommend the show to friends, colleagues, or anyone anywhere who is hungry for a weekly dose of constitutional, statutory, and legal debate. And always remember that the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We rely on the generosity, the passion, the, the, the willingness to take the time to educate yourself. People like you from around the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate. You can support the mission by becoming a member at constitutioncenter.org forward slash membership or give a donation of any amount to support our work, including this podcast at constitutioncenter.org forward slash donate. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen. Thank you.